This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, the show that talks all things outdoors in Paul Bunyan Country, or as we like to call it, paradise. Welcome to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Coming up later on in the show, we are going to hear about a state record walleye. Not Minnesota State, but the North Dakota State record walleye. We're going all the way over to western North Dakota to hear the story from new record holder Jared Shipkoski. But up first, our listeners in the Brainerd Lakes area have already had to deal with it. Now we will have to deal with it in Beltrami County. CWD, Chronic Wasting Disease. A deer tested positive in Beltrami County. So what comes next? We checked with the expert to find out. Dr. Michelle Karstensen joins us. She's the Wildlife Health Program Supervisor with the Minnesota DNR. I was told she is the expert, the person to talk to about that. So, Michelle, thank you for taking the time today. Happy to be here. So let's uh, yeah, let's start with the big story here in Beltrami County, and that was a positive uh, chronic wasting disease uh, test with a deer. How did we find that deer? Sure. And so this actually was related to an investigation that had started this last fall when the disease was discovered on a deer farm in Houston County. And so um, that was uh, traced back to a farm that was in Winona County, and from there there's a number of different uh, facilities in different counties that receive deer over the course of that uh, that farm's operation. And so the Board of Animal Health does investigations in each of those properties to see if the deer are still alive that were moved there, um, and then they get purchased uh, by USDA or United States Department of Agricultural Funds uh, and killed and tested for the disease. And so um, as they work through that progression, uh, they ended up with a farm in Beltrami County and in this case, uh, that an- the animals that were moved onto that farm, one of them did test positive for chronic wasting disease, and that was here in March. And so that's the, the finding that we have of this disease now in a whole new area of the state, um, and it was related to, you know, a deer movement from, uh, from this investigation. So this was not a natural progression northward. This was a trans- tr- transplanted deer. Yes, it's it's uh, believed to be uh, from uh, one of the same facilities that sourced the uh, the herd that was infected in, in in Houston County. Yes, so a transfer of deer um, from farm to farm. Um, and uh, one you know thing to remember with chronic wasting disease is it's a very very slowly progressive disease. So deer that have this disease um, are exposed you know um, to prions, and then it takes one to three years before they actually look sick to the naked eye. And so Deer might be sick, but they don't look sick. And so moving them, you know, from a facility or even hunters that shoot one that's positive, sometimes it's hard to believe it's a sick animal until the disease really kicks in, then they go downhill fast. Okay. And with an absence of a real reliable test for live animals, um, it's, it's hard to know uh, the status of some of these animals before movement happens and it's just too late. So for those who aren't familiar with deer farms, what are deer farms and what is the deal with the transferring of deer? Well, it's uh, legal in Minnesota to uh, possess captive cervids. So that, that could be deer, elk, um, and sometimes there's some other exotic type of, of cervids that people choose to have. Um, and that industry is regulated by the Minnesota Board of Animal Health, um, and they have a lot of uh, different rules and regulations that govern um, what a farmer needs to do to possess those 
animals, and they're considered livestock within those herds. So even though they're the same species that also exist outside the fence in Minnesota for deer and elk, um, when they're inside the fence, they're considered a, a livestock animal, and they're managed as such by that agency. Okay. And are these uh, are these uh, farms used for, like, special hunts, or how, how does that work? Yeah, so the, the producer that chooses to, to have these animals can do so for a variety of reasons. Um, some of them are hobbyists, so they just have uh, some animals um, because they like them and they have an interest in that. Others are doing it for their livelihood, where they might be uh, breeding deer and then uh, selling uh, offspring um, or semen if they have uh, males that have large antlers. So a lot of the uh, the work is towards antler mass and size that are achieved at very young ages, and these animals become valuable uh, in their industry. Um, and so they also sell animals out of state into different uh, shooting facilities. And so there's also products from the venison as well as antler velvet, um, urine-based scents that are out there for hunters. Um, those are derived from captive servant operations. So there's a variety of products that this industry can generate and either market in-state or, in many cases, out-of-state. So what is the biggest concern for those of us in this uh, neck of the woods when it comes to this positive test? So what, what this positive test signifies is the disease has now moved a couple hundred miles from, from the southeast part of the state you know, to this farm. And so then it's, well, whether or not there's been any interaction, you know, with wild deer that live on the outside with animals that are inside that facility and has exposure happened. So that's the risk that we're concerned about. So with our plan for Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, in situations like this where a farm is found to have the disease, we're uh, automatically concerned about possible spillover into the wild server population. So what we'll be doing is conducting surveillance this coming fall to uh, look to see if there's any infection that we can pick up in the wild um, in the permit areas that include and surround uh, that farm detection. And that effort will not only just be one year, it'll go on for a minimum of three for the reasons I already mentioned, which were the long incubation period of this disease. So since it can be take up to three years, we want to make sure that we actually spend enough time looking uh, for this disease in the wild to have, you know, enough confidence if we don't find it that it's really not there. And what does that mean for those who are out hunting in, in this area? Yeah, so for hunters in the, in the Beltrami County area and surrounding area, really, too, you know, expect to have uh, information coming out with this hunting season that explains what we would like to have happen for surveillance. It could be a combination of some mandatory testing or some voluntary testing. We're still working that out. Uh, but you're going to uh, hear about the, the places that you can go to have your deer tested and uh, what the process is like to have that done. Um, and I've been doing this for 17 years now with DNR uh, and working with hunters on CWD sampling, and it is, is quite harmless. Um, it only takes a few minutes. Uh, we take samples from the neck of the deer. Um, and, uh, um, and so it's really not that inconvenient for hunters. They just need to know where to find us, and we try to get the work done as quickly as possible and get them test results uh, in a timely fashion, which can be anywhere from three days to, to up to a week, um, and they'll, they'll have confidence of whether or not their animal was infected or not so they can decide if they want to eat that venison or not. 
And as of now, there's no prohibition for eating that venison? No, there's no prohibition. So what, what has gone on with uh, venison consumption is really an advisory uh, from the CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control. So they recommend that if you're a hunter and you're hunting in an area where the disease may occur on the landscape, to have your animal tested, particularly if it's over a year old, because it takes so long for the disease to show up, um, and that if it is positive, to not eat the venison. So chronic wasting disease has not been confirmed ever in a human, ever. But there is a risk that at some point there might be some sort of mutation or something happening where humans may become susceptible. And if we think about the whole mad cow outbreak that happened in the U.K., um, that's an example of a prion disease that uh, moved from cattle into affecting humans. So we do know that there has been a situation that made that possible, but we have no information at this time to, to confirm chronic wasting disease has ever affected people. But it's just really, it's just good practice. Don't eat sick things. You know, whether the animal had, you know, meningitis or a bacterial infection. And, you know, I mean, if it smells bad and it looks bad, don't eat it. So just common sense. Yeah, I mean, we're just coming out of a, uh, basically a shutdown because of a mutation in an animal, correct? COVID-19. Well. I mean, it's not the same thing, obviously, but. Sure. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Similar, right? Yep. Yeah. So be careful. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you were the, the, some of the things you're describing that that we're going to have to be doing up here. I know a lot of our listeners in Brainerd are very familiar with in the Brainerd area because there's been that situation there. Um, they've been doing that for what three, four years now. Three years in a row, correct. And so what had happened there was a similar situation where a, a servant farm was found infected. And uh, we did the exact same response. We conducted surveillance in the permanent area that included that farm and the surrounding area on year one, and we never found any positive disease, so any disease deer, so we were looking pretty good. And then, unfortunately, the second year, um, a sick deer showed up close to the facility and was observed by someone from the public, and it turned out to have chronic wasting disease. And so we knew now that we had some disease in the wild. So that sort of resets the clock back to that three-year metric. And so we've now done surveillance two additional years, and this would be year three this coming fall. We have not found any additional infected deer, and that's over 13,000 deer that we've tested in this area. So we have a very high confidence that this disease is not uh, widely distributed at all in deer in that area and may not exist even in another individual. So if we can make it through this fall uh, with the same good news we've had the last couple of years, then we would be ending our surveillance in that area for the following year. Where chronic wasting disease seems to be the the worst would be in the southeast part of the state, correct? Yes, we do have an outbreak in the Fillmore County area that we found in 2016 that appears to be persisting on the landscape, meaning we continue to find individuals with disease. It's, again, not very high. We're at about a 1% infection rate which is not that high considering if we just look to the east to Wisconsin, you know, they're at, you know, 40% in their adult bucks in their initial outbreak area, 30% in females. Um, so they have a lot more disease than what we're talking about in southeast Minnesota, but we don't want to get there. So we're learning from our neighbors, and we know how we don't want to look in two or three decades from now. So we're working really hard to try to keep the disease uh, at a low prevalence even, you know, try to reduce prevalence if we can. And we're very concerned about spread into other areas of the state. 
So for hunters that hunt in southeast Minnesota or the folks that are in Brainerd, they're also familiar with carcass movement restrictions. And so where we have found the disease in the wild, we tell our hunters, you know, please don't take that carcass outside of the area in the hole because we want to leave the parts of the deer that could be infectious, the brain, you know, the spinal column is the areas prions accumulate the most, you know, where the disease is on the landscape and not introduce it to new areas of the state. So, you know, restricting how those carcasses move is another tool to try to mitigate that risk of spread. We have a lot more to cover on CWD with the DNR's Dr. Michelle Karstensen. But up next, we're going to talk fishing. Fishing's only a couple weeks away. They're already catching walleyes in North Dakota. Apparently state record ones. And we'll hear from the record holder next on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Welcome back to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We are headed actually well beyond Paul Bunyan Country. For us, the Red River is a stretch, but we're going deep into North Dakota because we've got Jared Shipkowski of Dickinson, North Dakota, on the line today. He is the new record holder of the largest walleye ever caught in North Dakota. And first of all, Jared, congratulations. Thank you. So uh, how big was that beast? Uh, I think it's 16.6. 16 pounds, 16 ounces. It was sixteen pounds. Uh, well, that's 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 a big old beast. Like you say, uh, it's it's certainly uh, just shy of the record in Minnesota, and uh, definitely has to be one of the biggest walleyes ever caught in the United States. I would think. I don't know. There's pretty big ones caught in Washington State pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. I think. So, and this was on Lake Oahe, which, as we were talking about, really is a is a, is a part of uh, of the Missouri River system. Uh, and there's, there definitely is some, some big walleyes and some definitely good walleye fishing over in that neck of the woods. Yes, there is. How often do you fish there? Uh, quite a bit in the fall and the spring. Typically, where do you do your fishing? Uh, Lake Sakakawea quite a bit. We travel around quite a bit. Um, we just got, like, two weeks before we caught that, state record we were over in washington state um travel a lot to lake erie and green bay so like you're to go everywhere you're or not lake sakakawea a lot because it's close to home there but sure so basically you're not a novice at walleye fishing and you're not uh, one who's just stick, sticks in the area you've 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 fished the big waters before yeah we get out and get as much experience as we can elsewhere i guess so compared to uh, how do you how do you rate the the walleye fishing in North Dakota, particularly your area of North Dakota, compared to some of the other places you fished? It's it's pretty good. I mean, it's it's right up there with everywhere else. Well, Lake Sakakawea doesn't have the size of fish, but there's there's a lot of fish there. I you know he obviously has big fish there, but pre- it's definitely it's definitely up there. Okay, because you know we're we're kind of snobs over here in Minnesota. I gotta admit it, you know. <laughs> we brag about our 10,000 lakes and, you know, state fish, walleye, all that. Uh, but I uh, keep getting proof that there's a lot of good walleye fishing elsewhere, and this was certainly part of it. Prior to this event, what was the biggest fish you'd ever caught? 31-inch. Uh, I don't know the weight on it. We just measured it and released it right away. And that was in uh, Washington State on the Columbia River. So when did you actually catch this, this record? Um, I think... I think it was March 13th, I believe. I'd have to look back at my pictures. And that's another thing to bring up, and I want to get into the actual action in, in a bit. But um, So is walleye continuously open in North Dakota? Yes, it is. 
So, yeah, it's not like Minnesota where they shut it down. It's it's open round year round. So that's something you can brag about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we get we get a good chance to catch big fish all the time year round. So you're you're out fishing Lake Oahe. Take us through what happened. Well, we were fishing we were fishing down by the Cannonball earlier in the day because well uh, there was quite a bit of boat traffic. So we thought we didn't know for sure. We just went south because. It was more wide open. There was nobody to bother us, really. And we were just uh, we were pulling some cranks, catching some nice, decent fish, I guess. Nothing bigger than 24 inches. But we had a couple of kids with us, my friend's son and um, Tyler Jenry, my buddy that was with his son, was also with. And uh, we actually went down and dropped them off on shore. And we were pitching jigs around there, catching some fish. And then uh, got later in the day, about an hour and a half left of sunset, hour left or something before sunset. And... He said, let's go pick up the kids. I said, and I kind of joked with him. I said, yeah, let's go catch a state record. So we went and grabbed the kids, and we went up north there. And uh, we set rods. We were pulling cranks, planer boards. And uh, I got my last rod set, and I was, wasn't paying attention, really. And Tyler mentioned something. I looked over, and my planer board was sickling back there, and I grabbed onto it, and I knew there was a pretty good fish on there right away. <laughs> so you could tell immediately. Yeah, yeah, because the kids were standing there waiting to for their turn and i said i don't know i said i couldn't i couldn't really reel on it. i said i'll just i better reel this one in i told them so how long a battle and, uh, did you have you know i don't even know it probably five to ten minutes i was taking it pretty easy we were in the current there and stuff and i didn't want it to come off but once we got it up and it, it came to surface once and tyler told me it's hooked good take your time so we kind of just took our time and got it up to the net and editor wow. the rest is history i guess <laughs> yeah it is history um so when you pulled it out of the water you had to know you were you, you had a shot at the record yeah well i don't know i thought i was thinking more like 14 15 pounds or something like that and uh i had a scale on my boat i, I never really used it because we usually just measure them and release them and stuff i had a scale on my boat i found an old tackle box and uh, I threw it on there, and it said 16 point, what the heck was it, 4-2, I believe, on the scale, the scale red. And uh, I knew what the record was. And no. I told Tyler, I think, I think we got it if this scale's right. And uh, he, he sent a picture to one of his buddies, actually, and uh, we were going to make another pass, and his buddy called. He said, what are you guys doing? Because he was down the river from us. I think he might be able to see us down there. But what are you guys doing? He's like, we're going to make another pass. There's some big fish in here. He said, you guys are dumb. He said, go away that fish. We load it up and head it in. So, what's the process of of verifying and making it, making it the record? What do you, what do you have to do? Well, I didn't know what it was at the point, so I called the game warden right away and uh, told him what was going on. And uh, I looked up Whopper Club way stations, and it was there was a couple gas stations close in Bismarck. There, we went to while well, their scales aren't certified, so we went to one and. Uh, Scale wasn't certified, so we went to another one. They're certified to get Whopper Club, you know, stuff, but they're not they're not certified for a state record. You actually have to be certified by the state or the state uh, tax commissioner or something, I believe. But anyway, it has to be certified by the state. So we ended up having to go to a grocery store to cash wise, and uh, the game warden met us over there, and uh, wow, you know, he witnessed it and looked the fish over and stuff, and that was it. This is not nearly as controversial as the last time we thought there was a record in North Dakota. Yeah, I, yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> so, I, I mean, what's it feel like? Feels good. Yeah, kind of, 
kind of crazy. We always talked about it, me and my buddy Tyler, the one that goes chasing big fish with me. And uh, we said we're going to get a big one. We never knew if we'd get a state record, but we knew if we kept at it, we'd we'd catch something like that. And it just happened to be that day. It caught me by surprise because we didn't catch no big fish that day, really, I guess. Nothing over 24 inches in length, so okay, surprising. Any idea? I mean, did, did, did anybody estimate how old that fish must be? They are going to take, when I when the taxidermy or the taxidermist gets into it, they're going to take them deals out of the ears or whatever they are. I don't know what they're called. I can't remember, but they can age the fish like that. But they're 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 thinking it's from uh, like 22 years old, they're assuming. That's, uh, that's, so. it's, just, it's pretty amazing. Um, are you going to be able to uh, put it on your wall? Yeah, I'm actually going to get a 360 mount out of it and put it in a glass case. Oh, okay, cool. Is that going to be right in the middle of your living room? Is that going to be allowed? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I'm not married, so I can put it anywhere. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> well, that makes yeah, it easier. I whenever I want. <laughs> uh, so, so how often do you get out on the water and go fishing? Oh, every weekend pretty much and everything in between there I can get off, I guess. Okay. And uh, like you said, you, you, you like to fish at all. Uh, you like to fish different places. Um, what's your fa- Where is your favorite place to fish, actually? Lake Erie's pretty fun. I like that place a lot. A lot of fish there. Wide open, you know. Mm-hmm. Green Bay's a lot of fun at night. I like fishing there. I don't know. My pre- probably likes Kakawea, though. It's my home waters and stuff. So The scenery's nice, and it's, it's big. And it's challenging, too, that place. So probably likes Kakawea. I've definitely seen a lot of big fish come off those Great Lakes you mentioned, but uh, none that big. None that big that you got in North Dakota. No, I guess probably going through a cycle of big ones right now, so it won't last forever, so we'll enjoy it for for as long as we got it, I guess. So I'm assuming you're going to be out fishing again real soon? Yeah, this weekend, I suppose, somewhere. So all the now all my Minnesotan listeners that uh, that are saying, okay, I got to go catch a big one out in North Dakota. Uh, wh- what do we need to bring? What are they biting on right now? Um, you know, pitching jigs a lot lately. They're up shallow, shallower than you can get with anything else kind of on the lake there. So that's what we've been doing. I'm assuming you've been interviewed probably more in the last few weeks than you've ever been interviewed in your life. Ever. <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's okay, I'll take it while it lasts, because it won't last forever. <laughs> That's right, but you'll always have that 360 fish in the middle of your living room. Yes. Jared Chipkowski of Dickinson, North Dakota, he is the new owner of the uh, North Dakota State Record Walleye. Great story, Jared. Thanks for sharing it with us. Congratulations. You're welcome. Thanks for getting a hold of me. More CWD talk is coming up in the next segment, but let's continue talking fishing right now and bring in Steve Saponiak from Predator Guide Service. Steve, two weeks, two weeks away. Two weeks away. I can't wait. I am excited. I mean, we can actually keep a fish this year, which is going to be great on Mille Lacs Lake. And you know, Kevin, the surrounding lakes around Mille Lacs are doing pretty good too right now for panfish. So, and there's a lot of walleyes. So anyone who's in the Mille Lacs Lake area fishing, you've got a lot of opportunities to bring home some fish for the freezer, you know, and uh, it's going to be fun. That's all I can say. It's going to be fun. Panfish, walleyes, northern pike, it's all happening. It is indeed, and, you know, uh, I say two weeks, but, uh, you know, when we're talking two weeks, we're talking about the pan or the walleye opener, we're talking about the northern opener, but uh, there's a lot of fish you can fish for right now, and the lakes are open, so, you know, why not get that boat in the water and do a little fishing right now? Well, exactly. I'm going panfishing again tomorrow morning. 
I can't wait to get out. Uh, my regular hometown of uh, Way Park, you know, a lot of action is happening around there. I got Mille Lacs Lake with the smaller lakes nearby. I'm going to be on those this Saturday with my wife, and I can't wait. You know, the crappie action, the sunfish action, Kevin, has been pretty good around the Mille Lacs Lake area right now. Uh, things have been looking real well, decent-sized sunnies, a lot of them three to a pound, and crappies, and decent, uh, I would say decent-sized crappies, or half pound and a little bit bigger, so... That's really, really uh, what it's all about. Go have fun. And if you're like me, uh, throw those big sunnies back. If you're catching 9, 10, you know, 10 inches and bigger, I like to throw those back. And same with the crappies. If they're over 11 and a half inches or a foot, they go back in the water too. You know, got to keep those good genetics going. Yeah, and one of the things we got to be aware of when we're out pan fishing this year, uh, you know, 60, I think it's 65 or 66 lakes. Um, that have that new five uh, five fish limit on it for bluegills. Some have ten fish limits as part of that uh, initiative that's into in effect now. So, you know, before you go, grab the rules book or get on the website and make sure you know what the limit is on the lake you're going to. Definitely, I had a question given to me last year about different lakes that I've been I was guiding on for Northern Pike, Kevin. And like I said, you know, folks, I can sympathize with your frustration to the point where you have to have a rule book with you, Kevin, for every single lake you go to, because no lake is the same, it seems like. So definitely five fish sunfish limits on a lot of lakes and ten fish sunfish limits on a lot of lakes. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stay around for a while, folks. You know, Kevin, you're absolutely right. You know, take the rule book with you or Google it. Go to Minnesota DNR website. Another thing that's going to happen here soon, Kevin, is we're going to see different lakes with different crappie limits. It's the same scenario as a panfish. Overharvest is what caused it. I, I see it all the time, and it's a shame. You know, but what do you do? You, yeah, you, you got to do – I mean, we want to have good-sized panfish, so, you, you know, we got to do what we got to do to make it happen. I've found most Minnesota anglers pretty smart, understand what's going on, and, you, do, you know, from the guys who really know what's going on, not a lot of pushback when we, we implement these things. Exactly. You know, they understand why it's happening and everything. Like you said, most people are really uh, happy to accept the fact and everything. How many fish do you really need to take home? I remember the old days, you know, I, I would come home and tell my dad, you know, I got uh, just about my limit of sunfish. I said only four or five away from my limit. Instead of him being happy, he goes, well, he said a real good fisherman would have got their limit. <laughs> and, you know, like I told him, I said, Dad, not everybody needs to have a limit. I said, how many are you going to eat? He goes, well, you freeze the rest. I said, no. I said, that's I said that's going to come to an end someday. Well, that was 40 years ago. It took 40 years to get there, but I'm glad it's here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when it comes to panfish, what's your favorite ones to go after? Oh, I tell you, I'm like a cheap date, Kevin, whatever works. <laughs> I love panfishing for sunfish, bluegills. I love those big devils. And, you know, crappies, too. Yeah, I, I, it's hard to say which is better, which is more exciting for me. I'll, I'll give an honest answer. Whichever one is biting the best is probably the one that's the most exciting for that hour, for that day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you uh, when we get ready for that walleye uh, bite in a couple of weeks, what are you anticipating based on what you've seen as far as uh, temps and, and, and what the lakes are looking like right now? Where do you expect the walleyes to be? That's a great question, Kevin. What we're looking at for the big lake, Mille Lacs Lake folks, is we're going to have a really good shallow water bite and a mid-depth bite happening. So you're going to find a lot of walleyes early in the morning, late in the evening, in those sand flat in those sandy areas near shore. Uh, look anywhere from four or five feet of water as deep as 12 feet. 
You know, the key here is pay attention to that sonar. You're going to have them near the sand, near the shore. You're also going to have them along the weed edges. Like, say, Vineland Bay will have a huge assortment of walleyes. I used to catch them left and right all day long over there the first two weeks of opener. But there are so many other good places on Mille Lacs, like too, Kevin. Uh, a lot of sand bite out on the sand flats, but not as near as good as you think it would be this time of year. So avoid going out to the flats. If you want to go out there, go ahead. There are some fish. You're going to find a heck of a lot more fish, Kevin, by shore. And that's something to keep in mind. I'm going to concentrate on lindy rigging, which I love to do. And I'm going to concentrate on bobber fishing, fishing, which I love to do. You know, nothing more exciting than watching that bobber go down and everything and then, you know, setting a hook on a nice-sized walleye. When bobber fishing, I like to set my leech and my hook no more than six inches off the bottom. Maybe a foot at the very, very most. That's pushing it. And when I lindy rig, I touch bottom. I lift up with my sinker just a wrist distance, which is two to three inches. If you keep on lindy rigging, dragging that sinker on the bottom, you are causing a dust cloud. Think about that, folks. Dragging the sinker on the bottom, whether you're in sand or in a mud flap, you're causing a dust cloud. And when your leech or crawler comes through that dust cloud, no walleye sees it. So touch bottom real quick and lift up. And you got a clean presentation. What I like to do is I tell my clients every 30 seconds to a minute, touch bottom again. Maybe I forgot to tell you, we went two feet deeper, and you can adjust your line accordingly. But every time you touch bottom and lift up real quick, too, any walleye in the surrounding area hears that little thumping noise, and they come over there, and they see a little puff of dust. They think it might be a crayfish, so they come over to investigate, and here comes a clean um Clean presentation in the form of a neck crawler or a leech. So there's a win-win situation for Lindy Rigging, folks. I got to admit, you're one of the few people I hear talking about rigging this early in the year. Love it. You know, <laughs> people, it, it's happening. You know, Lindy Rigging has always been productive to uh, for us this early in the year on Mille Lacs Lake and the surrounding lakes. I know a lot of guys, you know, love to bobber fish this time of year, which I do also. And then you always got the gentlemen and the gals who love to pull crankbaits early in the morning and late in the evening around the rock reefs. That's productive as well. My key is, as a guide, i got to put my uh, clients on fish all the time, Kevin. So I find if the wind is heading, let's say, from the north going south, I'll get on a great big flat sandbar, you know, near shore, and I'll run the whole thing for about a quarter mile to a half a mile, marking where each walleye is laying on the bottom. I do. I put an icon with my sonar on it. Then what I do is I go back where I started, and I slowly let the wind take us back to every fish we had marked. And three-quarters of the time, Kevin, we catch those fish that we went over, you know, and we do the approach for fishing. So instead of just going blind somewhere, folks, move around with your boat, get your sonar going, and find those fish before you fish them. That is the key. Okay. Hey, uh, Mark, uh, sorry, I was just thinking of somebody else. <laughs> I was just on the phone with Mark Batchigal. Batchigalupi, so I just called you Mark. I'm gonna. It's a good thing I'm doing yeah, this. No problem. It's a good thing I'm. Uh, I, I can edit I answer this. Answer to a lot of names. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do that again. Hey, Steve. Uh, I know you had a couple of articles published recently. Uh, what were those about, and where can we find them? Well, thank you. Um, one of them was uh, a couple of weeks ago. Outdoor news. <clears throat> I love writing for them. They're a great group, and that was on pan fishing, early season techniques, and approach. Uh, talk about what kind of baits and where to fish for the sunfish early in the season and the crappies early in the season. Uh, one thing that I touched bases on was using artificial also. Why is it so productive? One thing, you know, keep in mind, folks, when using artificial, good artificial baits have scent to them. So it emulates a live bait. And right now, early in the season, live baits such as minnows for crappies, plastics for crappies, uh, waxworms, mouse seeds, angleworms, nightcrawlers for sunfish, 
you know, it's the scent that they're attracted to right now. And that has been a big key factor. The uh, sunfish and crappies moved all the deep holes and they're staging along the shoreline, getting ready for the upcoming spawn. And you target the areas where they're hiding, you're going to have good luck catching them. And then the other article just came out a couple of days ago, uh, Muskie's Inc. magazine. I wrote an article on early season presentation and techniques for muskie fishing. I talked about a couple of years ago, uh, had a couple of gentlemen out. It was a brother, brother team, Matthew and Adam. And I've fished with these guys before. And it was a pouring rain. And if it wouldn't have been for the fantastic muskie bite we had opening day, we wouldn't have stayed. We had 28 follows. We had seven hits and five muskies boated up to 52 and a half inches, and that was opening day. And we were fishing, Kevin, one and a half feet of water to five feet of water. And when you tie into a nice-sized muskie, the action is aerobatic and it's acrobatic and it's exciting as heck. So I discussed that, how to find these places, what to look for, how to use the approach, and how to fish them. Okay, and those are both in Outdoor News? Uh, that uh, oh, one muskies. article on Muskie was, Fishing, Muskies Inc. Magazine. Inc. Yes, okay. So uh, go check those out, and Steve, if uh, somebody wants to book a muskie trip or any kind of trip with you uh, and Predator Guide Service, how do they do that? Ah, good question. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, Northern Pike, Walleye, Muskie, Bass, you know, we'll, we'll take you out for everything. Go to my website, PredatorGuideService.com, PredatorGuideService.com, all one word. I got all the information there. You, there's my home phone number. You can uh, call and leave a message, or maybe I'll be around and answer it. That is 320-253-7535. And if you want to learn more about muskie fishing and walleye fishing on the Lax Lake, folks, go to the Rice Sportsman's Club, May 5th in the evening. I'm giving a big seminar there. Rice Sportsman's Club, May 5th in the evening. Hopefully see you there. He's Steve Sapaniak from Predator Guide Service, joining us today on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Steve, as always, thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. There's going to be a lot of fishing talk coming up starting next week. It's pretty much going to be all fishing for about 20 weeks or so. And maybe every now and then we'll have to talk about something else. But come on, we're at 10,000 lakes. Walleye season's coming. We've got a lot of fishing to talk about. But up next... Back to a serious topic, Dr. Michelle Karstensen joins us once again to continue the conversation on chronic wasting disease in Beltrami County and elsewhere in the state of Minnesota. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We are back on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Dr. Michelle Karstensen of the Minnesota DNR joining me to talk about chronic wasting disease. And Michelle, obviously when you're talking about uh, a disease that goes from a living one living being to another living being, it's, it's, it's a little bit different. But it reminds me uh, of the battle against AIS and trying to keep it contained, trying to do what you can to keep it from moving to another body of water. I, there are specific steps that we can take to help stop the spread of AIS. What can we as average people or average hunters do, if anything, to try to stop this? besides the, some yeah. of the things you mentioned. That's a great analogy. I mean, it, it really is uh, in our control with a lot of these risks, you know. So for, for one, we tell hunters, you know, make a plan. If you're going to hunt in an area that has chronic wasting disease management or surveillance going on, be aware, number one. Please, you know, participate in the testing. If you're in an area where there's carcass movement restrictions, already think about, you know, if I shoot that buck of a lifetime, you know, where's the taxidermist that I want to use? Do I want to cape it out myself, you know? Do I want to have someone cape it for me? How am I going to get that that animal taken care of to maintain my trophy? 
You know, if I'm going to use a meat processor, where do I want to find one that's within a zone? Or if I want to quarter the deer myself, we do have quartering stations available for hunters in all of these areas. You know, bring some coolers with us, with you so you can just take the quarters home. You don't have to wait for that deer's uh, results to come back. And so it's making a good game plan for what you're going to do with your harvest, how you're going to handle a trophy, and be prepared for all of those scenarios. Um, you know, puts us all in the best position for hunters to comply with the with the rules that we have about, you know, the testing and carcass movements and also have a great hunt and not be burdened by some of these additional asks that we have for our hunters to help us as we want to fight this disease. We, uh, I've heard that, that chronic wasting diseases is a much more serious problem in, in Wisconsin. Is that correct? Yes, very much so. So what has happened there? Well, in Wisconsin, they first detected this disease in the wild in 2002. And when they first discovered it, and this is in southern Wisconsin, it was already at levels over 5% in the area where they were looking. And so that says it's already been in the landscape probably a couple decades before they even found it. So the disease already had time to spread to enough individuals that it was becoming endemic. And with this disease, it's not just spread animal to animal, it's also spread through indirect contact with the environment, meaning a deer that is infected can shed prions through their saliva, urine, or feces and contaminate a landscape. And deer wandering behind that initial deer and you know eating from the same area or drinking water where uh, prions have contaminated the ground can pick up the disease that way. So when it becomes uh, at higher prevalences, it can easily increase at a much rap- more rapid rate. So they've gone from, you know, 5 or 6% prevalence in those initial years to, as I mentioned, over 40% in some areas, where you're looking at a field, you know, nearly half the deer that you see are likely going to be infected with chronic wasting disease. Mm-hmm. That's a game changer for how hunters are viewing their experience, you know, their interest in consuming the venison. Um, and so it has a lot of repercussions for the entire culture of hunting uh, in Wisconsin with having that much disease on the landscape. And we've learned from that, and we certainly don't want to see that happen to Minnesota. Are there other states that have the issue going on as well? Unfortunately, 26 states have chronic wasting disease. Um, so, yes, it's uh, uh, unfortunately a lot of uh, common um, battles going on. You know, this originated in western states, um, so Wyoming and Colorado were the first ones to have found chronic wasting disease, but it's made a steady march eastward since uh really in the 60s for sure, moved its way east and uh, also some of the Canadian provinces um, as well as uh, Sweden and Norway have had a few cases too. So it's uh, not just a local Midwest problem for sure. There's a lot of states uh, fighting it and provinces in North America as well. Has there been some some at least uh, joint meetings uh, with various states and provinces to discuss it and think about some group efforts? Yes, there's been lots of activity uh, in chronic wasting disease. Um, so uh, for me, I meet with my neighboring states here um, more than, well, we meet annually. We talk monthly uh, for the Midwest states on all the things we're doing for chronic wasting disease. There are annual meetings, there's workshops, there's collaboration um, with our Canadian neighbors. Uh, so there's a lot of activity going on with the science of chronic wasting disease, trying to find methods to improve diagnostics, to test the disease, 
uh, to test for the disease at earlier ages in the deer. So you don't have to wait till they look sick to pick it up, that you can pick it up in live animals and uh, how to denature prions in soil and all kinds of um, activity going on to try to give us tools to manage this very complicated disease on the landscape. So we've made a lot of progress in the last 20 years, but we haven't found, you know, anything uh, that's going to give us, you know, the confidence to eradicate it from an area once it becomes endemic at this point. When you're not uh, working on chronic wasting disease, what does the Wildlife Health Program supervisor do? <laughs> wow, my most favorite is working with moose. So uh, recently I completed a, a five-year project on uh, moose mortality in northern Minnesota, and so I'm working on writing up those data. And uh, we have a project going on on deer exposure to neonicotinoid pesticides in Minnesota, and we work on waterfowl diseases and elk hunter uh, uh, health assessments. So we have uh, activity going on across multiple game species on health issues. But by far, chronic wasting disease uh, is the largest disease that we are uh, working on and uh, and takes the most resources from our state to try to manage for sure. Michelle, are you a veterinarian? I'm a doctor of a different kind. So okay. I have a PhD oh, okay. in uh, wildlife conservation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, how did you get into this? Well, um, I um, did my, my uh, undergraduate work at Cornell University and I was going to be a vet way back when. And then I decided wildlife had my as a better calling and I did a master's and PhD in Minnesota on deer, deer physiology and that kind of stuff. And when I got done, the DNR was looking for help with their chronic wasting disease program. And so I thought I would dabble in that and, you know, just as a place to start. And that was in 17 years ago and I haven't looked back. So now I run the unit and we have eight staff and we're responsible for all kinds of uh, disease management across multiple species. So it's, it's been a growth industry, I guess, in wildlife health. Um, some good and some bad. We're learning really interesting things, um, but also it's a sign of the times that we're fighting things like even influenza and uh, chronic wasting disease and bovine tuberculosis. So the need for uh, a group of folks that specialize in health has really uh, surfaced um, in this country. And uh, most states now um, have wildlife professionals that focus on health of their game species. Okay. Michelle, uh, of the uh, many, many, many DNR people I have spoken with over the years, I would say approximately 100% of them uh, grew up in the outdoors hunting, fishing, and that's what drew them into, into this kind of work. Um, how about for you? I'm a dairy farming kid from oh. Wisconsin, yep, and uh, absolutely connected with the land and animals and fishing um, and outdoor stuff since I can remember. So, yep, my, my love of hunting kicked in a little bit later in life, mostly when I met people that share my passions for the outdoors. They introduced me to hunting, and now I do a lot of that as well. So uh, I think you just are around like-minded folks that enjoy nature and, and uh, get to work where their passion is, and it's a nice fit. So you seem like a nice person, but are you a Packer fan? <laughs> I am, yes. you got to be. Am. I've never met anybody who lived on that side of the border that wasn't, to be honest. I mean, like, do I have a choice? (laughs) I don't think I voluntarily want to be a Viking fan and just be disappointed every year. I ask ask myself that question every year. (laughs) (laughs) Wisely so. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Michelle, you were mentioning uh, in the email when we were getting trying to get this set up, you're going turkey hunting this weekend. 
I am sea season. Yep. So I'm going to be leaving Thursday for uh, my quest to bag a tom. Yep. Is it? Have you done it before? I have. Yeah, I've hunted the last six years. Uh, this will be my sixth year. So I'm I'm three birds out of five years. So oh. hopefully, uh, hopefully this year will will prove successful once again. That has something. That is something that has become really, really popular up here. Is the explosion of uh, wild turkey, which I see every day on the road now or on the side of the road. Uh, what a great success story that is! Absolutely, yep. I mean, I was up at Lake of the Woods fishing, and there was turkeys crossing the road. So, I mean, <laughs> wow! Imagine that. Not that long ago, you know. I know. I know, and and all of a sudden it's they're everywhere, and you're seeing the pictures, and people are getting them every year in the during the, the spring season. It's it's just a it's a wonderful thing, and it just brings another unique wrinkle to living in in uh, Minnesota. That's for sure. Absolutely, yep. So much fun. All right, well, well Michelle, um, anything else we need to know about what's coming down the pike here in the next few months? Um, I think the only thing we probably haven't talked about is uh, is hunters, um, well, actually everyone in Beltrami County will likely be uh, notified uh, soon that we're going to also have a recreational feeding ban that will accompany this detection of chronic wasting disease in the area. So that's been part of our planning process um, for all the other areas where disease has been found is we automatically restrict that activity of, of recreationally feeding deer um, to try to not have deer coming close to close together with other deer and mitigate uh, disease spread where we can. So mm-hmm. that'll be a new thing for uh, residents of Beltrami County. The exact extent of, of the feeding ban is uh, unknown yet, but it's been uh, enacted in all the other areas that we've been working as well. So that's just to help us make sure that we're not making a problem worse before we can help understand what the problem is and what's going on with deer in the area. If we want to get more information and just to be a little bit better versed in this, uh, any resources we can go to online or elsewhere? Yeah, we have a great website uh, page on chronic wasting disease on the Minnesota DNR site. Um, so feel free to peruse there. There's all kinds of information about the disease and our, our history of sampling. And soon we'll have our plans on for this fall as soon as we get them um, decided upon. And also when the hunting regulations book comes out this summer, that'll have a lot of information about what to expect this year uh, for hunters to, to read and, and know what area they're in and what, uh, what the regulations are going to be for CWD in their zones. She is Dr. <laughs> Michelle Karstensen, Wildlife Health Program Supervisor, discussing CWD, chronic wasting disease in Beltrami County and statewide with us today. Michelle, thank you so much for the time and the information. It was outstanding, and good luck on that turkey hunt this weekend. Appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for this week. Don't forget, next week, Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors becomes Fishing Paul Bunyan Country. we got lots of great stuff coming up in the first couple of weeks to get you ready for fishing, and then we've got some of the best anglers in the world joining our show every week to talk about how to catch fish, where to catch fish, when to catch fish, etc., etc., etc. Hey, don't forget we're podcastable, so you can listen whenever it's convenient for you. All you have to do is subscribe to the podcast at Podcast One, the Pod MN app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Hey, the weather is beautiful. You couldn't get in the boat this weekend and do a little fishing, too. This has been Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We'll find out more about the great outdoors in Paul Bunyan Country next week. I'm Kev Jackson. Thanks for joining us.